I'm glad to be here this morning. Uh, as your pastor has introduced me, my name is Eder. My wife is here with me. Her name is Eloise. She doesn't like to be introduced, but I do anyway. When I'm preaching, I sometimes make jokes because I'm nervous. You know, when I go to a new place, I get a bit nervous. But my jokes are not funny. And normally people don't get it. But there's a way we're around that. So when I do this and wave, I just told the joke and I expect you to laugh. Does that work? Right on. Uh, well, it's a blessing to be here, it really is. Um, in part of me, wish we were meeting under different circumstances. But nevertheless, it's important time. And before I share what I believe God has placed in my heart, just to give honor where honor is due, it's, a, it's been a blessing to get to know your pastor as well. It really is, I told him over the phone last week, every time I met David, um, either for a coffee or to meet or different occasion, never walked, never walked away without being absolutely sure I met the child of God. And it's always been very, very encouraging to meet him. And I think we, we can get as, as people and we can get used to what we have and stop appreciating. And I think it's important that uh, I would tell you that respectfully that uh, he's a man to be appreciated and honored. Amen? Times such as we're going through reveals where we are at, which can be a good thing or can be a frightening thing. It reveals the direction of our life. It reveals our priorities, reveals what's important to us. Some of it is good, some of it is really, really bad. And at this morning, I want to go through a journey with you to ask you those questions. And it's interesting that a, 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 um, a crisis or an accident or a moment of fear can really reveal our priorities and our sense of direction. And as we're worshiping, I remember of a, a particular event. Oh, by the way, am I speaking okay? My accent is good enough to you. I got some tweed, you know. <laughs> I got some tweed. I've got a barber jacket and a, and a, and a British car but I cannot make the accent, I can't do it. So th this is as good as it's going to get. All right? So, right, right. So what was I? Right, important thing. Um, so some very many, many years ago in Brazil, um, we were, my brother and I and two friends, we went up to what we call the, uh, the South Brazilian highlands. South Brazil is a whole different country altogether. And we have beautiful highlands, such as yourselves here, and, but they're much higher mountains. So we were doing a, a business trip with my brother and, and two uh, of his friends. They were business partners. And we were coming down the hill at around uh, 70 to 80,000 miles per hour. That was allowed, by the way. So coming down the hill, uh, very steep roads in, in this friend's car. And then as we came down the hill, we were going on a flat, I mean, maybe a couple of minutes after, we were going on a straight flat road. Uh, it was a single dual, dual carriageway. We are going on the flat. Then we hear a noise. Oh, then the car shook a little bit. And then my friend said, I think our back wheel just took over. <laughs> and the back wheel just took off and went, and we were watching. And that, that is our wheel. The rear wheel which just took off and went on its own mind and it, and it fell into a ditch. And then we were like, and then we started to scream. If we had kept our cool, the car would have stopped just fine. But we got to scream like, 
mad people, and then the car fell, and as we were reducing the speed, the car fell on, onto the, uh, to the side. We didn't uh, turn over anything, and we're all like glad to be alive. The guy who owned the car said, my goodness, it's, it's going to scratch the paint. <laughs> and I thought to myself, there's probably more important things to life than the paint of your car right now. But what I'm trying to point is this, that, I, that crisis reveals where we are. It reveals the direction of our lives. It reveals what is important to us. I'd like you to open your Bible in the Luke chapter 10, 25. And, and now and I got the, the reference right this time, by the way. In my defense, your pastor asked me to get the reference in a hurry. So I'm not looking for scapegoats. I'm literally blaming him. Right, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. <clears throat> the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's a parable that we know well. And, um, and um, I would like just to read and talk a little bit about this parable today. Behold, a lawyer stood up to him, st uh, stood up to him to test him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, as in your neighbor, as yourself. As, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring, he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by a chance a priest was coming, going down uh, that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he came to the place he saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, as he was journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and, and bound him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil on wine, and then he sat on him, sat, he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took uh, out two denarii and gave to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him." Whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's interesting this parable. I do not know how long I have, but I will not go into as many details as I would like to, to be honest. Um, perhaps another time we can... Uh, look further into this. It's an incredible parable. It's an incredible story. Um, because I think as an evangelical community, and I perhaps, no, I'm going to take that back. As, a, as an evangelical man, always thought about the end of the story, what he did, and great. I want to be like him. I want to do what he did. And that's, that's the right thing to think and to ask. But we tend to narrow down to the action. 
that this parable is far more than just one man. This parable it speaks of a critical time in a society where people were fighting to survive. In the time of Jesus, there were just as many diseases as there are today, but less, much, much less resources and, and systems in place to provide care for people. And then we, if you go and begin to look into historical accounts, you see that for yourself. Um, this, this parable provides an opportunity for us to review our priorities, to review where we're going, to think about who am I becoming. So I would like to suggest that this parable is not only about what the one man has done, but what about seven people? Because there are seven characters in this parable. The, 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 the people who have gathered the Bible together in the modern scripture, which is obviously dividing chapters and putting in guidance for us, called the parable of the Good Samaritan. But it's in the whole context of scripture where Jesus is telling them and teaching the disciples who they were meant to be. And this parable then creates, gives us this narrative of seven individuals one of them being Jesus with the narrator. But Jesus displays this part in our lives. He narrates the story as much as he observes how he unfolds. So it's important that Jesus is there to, to give us guidance. But as much as he observes what we're going to do next. It's important that we kind of throw ourselves into this parable with one question. Who am I becoming? Because that's what I want by the end of today's sermon. Which is, how long do you, have, do you have to go somewhere after here? No? No? <laughs> so, uh, your legacy comes out of the person you're becoming, not the possessions you gather. Our society fundamentally sits upon three fundamental things. I need to have something, to do something, to become someone. You have to have something, to do something, to become someone. The kingdom of God is the opposite. You are someone, you have things, so go and do it. But right now, our, our society looks up to you, looks up to me, looks at, at us, and measures our, our greatness by how many people serve us. So your legacy, it's measured by how many possessions you have. In the kingdom of God, greatness is measured by how many people you serve. It's measured by who you're becoming. Your impact in the kingdom of God is not measured by how much you give, but how you make people feel when you're giving it. And the, 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 the parable of Samaritan, Good Samaritan brings that perspective. The parable, it's about... What someone is becoming. The parable speaks of what, what each individual is becoming. I'm getting to it in a minute. What the good Samaritan did to that wounded man on the side road came out of the person he was becoming, not necessarily what he had. We don't know if he was rich. Actually, quite likely he wasn't. Because of the cultural context and how the Jew hated 
the Samaritan in how rejected and oppressed and neglected they were. I'm not going to go anthropological here, but that's what the kind of community they were. They were really the least of the least as far as a Jewish ruling community was concerned. So it's very likely it would be perhaps safe to assume he was no rich man. He was just a guy getting by with daily, who is earning his daily wages as a, as a trader, as a merchant. So his legacy that we now are impacted with didn't, came out, not what he, how much he had, but the person he was becoming. A compassionate individual, a merciful man. We don't know his name. We only know his background because it was context. So the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, there are seven people in there. First to be being Jesus, the narrator. Second, the lawyer. Third, the man. Fourth, the robbers. Fifth, the priest. Sixth, the Levite. Seventh, the innkeeper. And eighth, the Good Samaritan. Um, if you take Jesus out, it's only seven. We all tend to focus a lot on what he did. But I would like you to ask you today to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. The parable ought to make you think. This parable ought to make you think about who you are becoming, where you are, and what are your priorities. This parable gives us an opportunity to, to identify with these people. And as we identify with them, it shows them, it will, it will show to us where we are and where we're heading to. Hope I'm making sense. The lawyer, let's talk about him for a minute. But in all seriousness, how long do I have? Where's the watch? Okay. It's not time yet, is it? All right. I didn't hear, so I'll take that. I think that's a good sign. The lawyer, it was a man of theories. He had all the theories. He a theoretical guy. Some translations speak of him as the, an expert of the law. So he knew the law by, the, by mind. I mean, he knew it, as we say, by heart. But was the law truly in his heart or simply in his mind? The way how he speaks to Christ reveals that the law was in his mind, never truly in his heart. He was driven by culture, not by the principle of the law, which was mercy. We can so be culturally driven by the law, by the regulations, yet completely miss out what the spirit of the law is intended in the first place. And this man is a perfect, perfect example. To the lawyer, the man on the side of the road was simply a study case. Something to speak of, but never to be engaged with. I'm quite happy to talk about it. I'm, so that, that some, of us, some of us are quite happy to have an opinion about something, but God forbidden to get involved. And that's what the lawyer was about. The lawyer, if you're a lawyer here, I'm not getting you, by the way. Love you, and I need your work. Especially in the days coming ahead. The lawyer knew the law, its consequences, but it but had no relationship with whom those the law applied to. He knew the law. He knew the mechanics. He knew what he was supposed to do, but had no one to do with. 
because Jesus said, you answered well. But that, because he knew there was something missing, and that was the relational aspect, he tried to justify himself and backfired. The law mainly, the lawyer was mainly driven by his culture, not by mercy. So much so that you see at the end of the parable, after all those things took place and what Jesus said, and, and every individual responded to the, to the man, and the Samaritan did what he did, because of his hatred towards Samaritan, as a Jewish man, and his hatred towards Samaritan people, he refused to answer the Samaritan, yet Jesus specifically mentioned the priest, the Levite, the innkeeper. He gave names, not names, but functions, roles. He said the merciful one. He could not come around to say the Samaritan. So the lawyer speaks about our heart, that whether we are kingdom-driven or culturally driven, that we are able to acknowledge the good deed, but because it's not done the way I would do, therefore I refuse to name it or to embrace it. The lawyer speaks about those who are prepared to have an opinion about anything, but hardly any relationship. The lawyer speaks of those who are ready to question any action, any plan, but never engage in in the creative process. Because that lawyer went to Jesus not to learn from him, but to question him, to put him to test. You only put something to test because either you want to know if it's good or you want to break it. I worked as a, a welder for General Motors back in Brazil, and we had the robots, and there are certain parts we would deliberately put it to test to see if it would break. We wanted it to break to see how, how far it would take. So there was never a desire in us to restore, it was only to break, to prove that was not good enough. So that's what the lawyer went to Jesus, to prove that he was just not good enough. And we can easily adopt that mindset. That anything that we don't recognize, or we don't think that is how I think it should be done, I will put it to test not to endorse, but to break it. That's a dangerous place to be. The lawyer only related to people in an informal way in order to avoid vulnerability. It's easy to write a letter to a friend that you're upset rather than simply going to your friend and knocking on the door and saying, look, this is how I'm feeling. That's what lawyers do. They send letters to each other. You know, I, was, uh, I purchased a house not far from here, which is great. Boy, there was a lot of paper to read. It was eventually, I just trusted. Where do I sign? There. That's it. Because it just, I, first of all, it's, it was a lot of the deeds were like a lot of, anyway, the point is, let's leave it there. The lawyer was self-centered. Unwilling to meet people where they were at. The lawyer didn't come to Jesus to say, why do you teach all these things? Rather than he wanted Jesus to come to where he was at, to prove him wrong. The lawyer speaks of those who are unwilling, want to have an opinion, but never to know why people do what they do. The man speaks of isolation. This man was alone 
in a very dangerous path. I don't know if you know it, but he's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was a descent, like a Monroe in the Scottish Highlands, over 3,000 feet descent. So he's coming down that hill in path, and the path that he was coming down, it was known as the bloody path. Well known where people were murdered and robbed on a daily basis. Yet that man finds himself alone. Isn't that interesting? It's like you send one of your own children to a very dangerous place in Scotland, one of those very bad, notorious neighborhoods that they are likely, something is likely to happen. So this man finds himself alone. He could, the two things could be happening here. It is a speculative, but I think it's fair to mention, to, to open up our imagination. One, he could be returning from Jerusalem. He went to worship, and now he's coming down to Jericho where he's from. The Bible doesn't say where he's from. The Bible says only where he was going to. Coming from, going to. It's unclear where he lived. But it's clear that two things could be happening here. Number one, he was alone when he was not supposed to be alone. He was not supposed to be left alone in that particular context. That speaks of where we are right now as a society. So he could be coming from Jerusalem after being, being in corporate worship, being with people in, in, in collective worship. Now, when he goes home, he's going alone. Or easily, he could be from Jerusalem, and he's going to Jericho, as Jericho was known as the city of bread. Just like the French are known for bread or in cheese or croissant. Anyway, the point is, it's like the Scot that the Scotland is known for... Uh, Various things. <laughs> I, will, I, I was going to say whiskey. I don't drink it myself, but I don't want you to get a wrong idea. But anyway, Chiricho was known as the city of bread. So it's interesting. This man had, a, whatever he was going, either he was coming from worship where he was collectively in a collective gathering, but now when he's going home, he's going alone, or he decided to go to a place of provision and chose to go alone. That picture speaks of us who choose to walk alone when we shouldn't. We choose to isolate ourselves when we shouldn't. And by the way, wash your hands, make yourself safe, but don't wash away your humanity. In Jesus' name. In this process we are going right now. Wash your hands, brush your teeth, it's a good thing too. By all means, blast your, have, a, have a good go. But do not wash away your humanity. And this man chose, to, chose or, or was allowed to be alone in a place of violence and robbery. He had to choose or was allowed. Why am I saying this? Because this man speaks of choices that we make that isolate ourselves. When we know it's wrong. And by choosing isolation... We think that we're choosing to be strong, but we are making ourselves weak. Because by choosing to be gathering, in a, to be in a collective environment, yes, we make ourselves vulnerable. But that vulnerability becomes a strength when we gather together. And this man chose to be alone. 
and he was unable to defend himself. The man speaks of those who bury their feelings rather than dealing with them. This man speaks of those who rather walk alone and not to be vulnerable. But yet what they do, they make themselves weak. The man also speaks of a community that allows the vulnerable to walk alone in dangerous places. Isolation has never been God's way. It might be culturally accepted, but it's not God's way. Has never been God's way. In isolation, one cannot be loved. In isolation, we don't hide from our demons. We simply give them space. So this man is a picture of those who perhaps choose to be alone in order, in order not to face their fears. But there's nothing more terrifying than to give in to fear. Fear is real. But in the gospel of Christ, we are able to acknowledge the fear, but not dwell in it. It's quite different. So then we have the robbers. I'm going to speed it up. I think my time might be up. The robbers speaks about self-centered people. Unconsidered, vicious, merciless, lazy, yet ambitious. Because isn't that, isn't that what a robber is, a thief is? They're lazy, they don't want to get up in the morning or go about the business like everybody else, but yet they're very ambitious. There was a time in my life that um, talking to my brother, and my brother really, and I, and he would say, I will say this here because he, he's okay with that. Although he's thousands of miles away, so who cares? So, but my brother really struggled with, uh, with envy. He really did. And one day he asked me, so, so how do I overcome that? I said, so pick the person you envy the most and serve this person. You kill it to the root. Robbers, they represent... Joy killers. Because they want something and they want it now. How many of us, just because we don't have something, we are unable to rejoice with the one who has? And our lack of response, of lack of celebration to one another, robs somebody else's joy. Or when we begin to compare, that's, a, that's the worst joy killer in church or in Christian life is comparison. The moment you compare yourself to somebody else or something, to something else, you are killing the joy that you just have been, you've just been given. And that's what robbers do. They want what somebody else had, but they were unwilling to work for it. They only think of what they need when they need it. Judas got what he wanted. And yet what he found killed him. That's a pretty heavy one. I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying what they, they, it represents. I'm getting there. You guys with me say amen. amen. That's what's good enough to me. Fred. The priest. Boy, I've got five pages on this, guys. I'm going to have to speed up. The priest is a man of words but very little action. Assuming the priest was coming from Jerusalem where he was leading some sort of service, some sort of a meeting in the temple. The priest is a man of someone 
The, to the priest, the man was someone to be used as an example of a sinful life. Well, he should be there. Yeah, I know this guy. I told him not to do the things you're doing. There it is. Another study case, but a more practical one. To the priest, the hurt man was not someone that he ought to be seen with because it would compromise his appearance. He was happy, the priest was quite happy to to instruct people in the temple as long as they have some level of control and with the environment he's comfortable with. But now that the priest is out there, he had very little to do with the man. So what I'm trying to say, the priest is a man of words but no actions. He is happy to talk about what needs to be done, but he himself is unable to carry out, or I would say unwilling to carry out. The priest had, very, 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 they had a title, he had a role in the temple, but was unwilling to be a priest where he was needed. Because to be a priest, a Jewish priest, and be seen, be bending, because you would have to bend down by a man who was likely to be naked, because you have to contextualize, he was stripped up from his clothes, so it means he was naked and bleeding. And God knows what else. So the priest had a title, he had a position, he knew that everything, but was unwilling to be a priest where he was needed. How many of us can act like that? The Levite had a reputation which was above mercy. To the Levite, the man was beneath his call and also an impure position. The Levite was supposed to lead worship, to, you know, to do the whole thing, to make, lead the church in worship. Fantastic. How many of us do that when God calls us to do something and our answer is, but that's not my, not my call. When people tell me that in my congregation, my second is, whose call is it then? Because I want to know. The Levite was trained and equipped to lead others in worship, yet unwilling to manifest the presence of God to a hurting man. Trained, equipped, to lead others into worship, yet unwilling to, to manifest the presence of God to a hurting man. The Levite speaks of those who know what needs to be done, but are only prepared to serve if they're comfortable with. The Levite speaks of those who have turned worship into an institutional practice, but also in a self-edifying act. In our church, we don't get a lot, but uh, I've seen it sometimes. How was church today? Yeah, it was okay. I said, what do you mean it was okay? The worship wasn't very good. Who stood the term, by the way? <laughs> because last time I checked, we worshiped, our worship is to God, but we can easily make it about us. So if the worship wasn't good, I want to know who determines it, because last time I checked, it's to God. The Levite speaks of those who are more concerned of how things look 
rather than what they could be. So yes, probably this man looked ugly as it could get, as beaten up as one could be, as dirty, as impure as religion says one ought to be. But the Levite was unable what this man could become once he was restored. And worship is ought to be the practice as we come before God as we are with the vision that we're going to become who we're meant to be. Am I making sense? Praise God. I'm there. I'm, I'm there. Stay with me. The innkeeper, the man was someone to be, to, made, to be made profit with. That's all he was. The innkeeper represents the position that we are happy to engage, we're happy to do as long as I get something out. That's just not good. The innkeeper was happy to get involved as long as he could make some profit. But then we come to the Good Samaritan, and that's the good one. The Good Samaritan, a man who knew was to be rejected, yet did not allow rejection to rule his life. A man who knew was to be isolated in a community that was not good enough, yet did not allow himself to be isolated in his heart. A man who knew what cultural opposition was like, yet he acted counterculturally. A man who was unknown to people, but well known to God. The Levite and the priest, the, the, the Greek word implies that two things that they saw, the, the word, how the Greek word implies that it, it was a common occurrence. It wasn't like, who. Oh, they saw something that was normal. Therefore, they got used to it. They got used to seeing and they got used to walking away. They also say, the Bible says that they were coming on a journey, which implies they were going the same direction of the man, but they got out of their ways not to get involved. That's what the Greek word implies. But when we come to the Samaritan, it's a whole different thing. The Bible implies that he got out. So what I'm trying to say is that the Levite and the priest walked away from the man. Amen? The Bible implies very clearly that the good Samaritan walked towards the man. It wasn't like it was convenient to him. He got out of his way to meet this man's need. The Samaritan made himself vulnerable to help a hurting man. He made himself weak by getting off his uh, animal in order to display mercy. The Samaritan man was driven by mercy. Not by fear. The Samaritan man knew who he was, what he had, and what he was supposed to do. The question I want to ask you finally today is that our actions display our priorities and direction of our lives. Faith is largely to do with direction and no accomplishments. His whole life was about becoming someone that was to be known as merciful. The Samaritan man committed his daily wage to bring that man into the inn. His entire day of work. And when he moved on, he made a promise. Whatever you spend, I will pay. So it's like the Samaritan man went to work for three, four days a week. And all his working wages would be simply to provide 
for the unknown men that he did not know, that he had never met before, but he was known to God. And that was good enough. His actions showed where he was, and most importantly, where he was going. What you speak and do reveals where you are, who you are becoming. And I would like to ask you in the name of Jesus that as we face these days ahead, this society, this fear, fearful and confused society, is in a great of need of a fearless and focused church. Our actions at this time will simply reveal where we are and where we are heading to. Amen? Amen. But as for individual, I'll leave that with you with one question. Who are you becoming? Amen. I'm going to guess the, the guys, Pastor Dave. I pro Did I speak more than I should? Okay. Fantastic. Amen. Thank you so much for... We're going to pray with you, obviously, but um, what I would like to, but before I pray, I'd like to thank you for having me here today, um, and, and Louise, my family, and, and people from Leith that come here so often, Jameson, Gabe, and Daisy, and uh, Jude, who came especially here. It's been a pleasure to be here with you, and um, yeah, ask yourself that question, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. Um, if, if you find yourself in the parable there's a, there's a way you can respond. You can now walk towards becoming merciful. No way, not walking away from it. And if you want to respond to the Lord, there's a way we can just do that, which is closing your eyes. And those who, those who have been able to acknowledge that you can, you can identify yourself with one of those characters, would you stand where you are and let, let us pray together? Remember that you're not standing for anybody else. You're standing for your Savior. You're standing for the cross. If God's spoken to you today, if we don't stand for anything, if we do not stand for something, we will fall for anything. Father, we just want to say thank you for the heart of your people. Father, I pray that you would just lead us into this journey of becoming people of mercy, people of compassion, people of faith. There's never been a time where the church in this country was so needed. It's a, it's a, it's a generational opportunity, Lord. And I pray that you would raise up the good Samaritans unknown to society, but well known to you, O Lord. Father, I pray that we would not walk away from the fight, but by faith walk towards it. Father, I pray that we would not walk away from the sick, but walk towards it with healing hands. We would not walk away from those in need, but we would be embody provision. Father, I pray that our worship in the days to come perhaps will be less about singing and more about manifesting your presence to those who need the most. 
Let me just share one little story. I'm going off topic here, and I know that, but I need to tell you this. Hospitality has nothing to do with the size of your house. Hospitality has nothing to do with how much you have. It's to do whether you have space in your heart or not. I went to a, I went to a local pub in Leith. We were having lunch with a pastor, and we were talking about the presence of the church. And I was having, we grabbed a cup of coffee and we went towards the coffee machine. There was this very, very elderly, frail old lady. And she was by the coffee machine and, we, and the two of us, smart cookies, trying to figure out how the machine works. And she, she looked at me, son, you're doing it wrong. She probably was eight, in her 80s. And she didn't ask, she grabbed our mugs. And then she put in the machine and she said, son, first of all, you put some hot water in it. And then she threw the water, and then she made the coffee. And then she served us coffee, and she blessed us and walked away. I, I do not know her name, I do not know where she lives, but it's likely that I will go to my grave remembering that hospitality is how you make people feel when they need the most.